Matthew 6, verse 19. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. Father, thank you, Lord, for teaching us. Thank you, Jesus, for helping us understand the nature of faith. And, and Lord, I'm grateful that you, you know us, you know our state, you know the troubles that we have. And in spite of all those things, you call us to faith, to trust you. So teach us, Lord. Encourage our hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Now, depending on the Bible that you have, you have subheadings. You may have two sections. You may have four sections. Uh, I don't know. Um, I see two sections in there. Uh, subheadings can be deceiving. I think it's all um, one subject divided into two compartments. Okay? One speaking to the affluent, the other speaking to the average kind of person. And uh, that's how I'm going to deal with it this morning. Um, most of the scholars that I read um, have the same perspective on this last part. Two sections, one subject. So, In, uh, in the, the two sections, uh, I, I would say even if you have four uh, subheadings in your Bible, three or 15, 
Jesus is really confronting the troubles of, of all people, of all people. How many of you guys have needs? Okay. Well, I think Jesus is pretty thorough then. The, um, he uh, addresses the concern of the wealthy to acquire more wealth. Uh, by the way, that is a trouble, uh, even a detriment to the soul. And then, of course, the concern of those who uh, struggle to make ends meet, or we might say live paycheck by paycheck. In regard to the first, uh, in the first century Israel, it was the wealthy who were able, who had the ability to store up for themselves earthly goods, and it was the regular person who really could only dream of such a thing, especially uh, in the type of gap in the wealth that was at that time. And then in the latter section, it was the average person who stressed over uh, their material needs being met. The whole while, the rich only concern themselves with um, where in the world are they going to store all of their goods. Uh, two very different um, uh, ways that people experience life. And I would say that uh, as far as the history of the world goes, not much has changed. Okay? Uh, of course, the experiment of Western society is an exception to the histories, uh, to the uh, societies in history. I think you would probably agree if you've looked at any history book. Um, I hope you agree. It is the truth. Uh, the majority of people um, in America live like kings compared to the rest of the world and compared to the way things have been uh, throughout world history. Um, I think you also have to keep in perspective that this experiment is merely a bubble I don't believe it'll last too much longer. Okay, I'm not, I'm not trying to, uh, it's not doom and gloom, but as we notice, the rest of the world makes it along, um, I wouldn't say just fine, but uh, they're doing okay. These wealth gaps, though, have always existed. Jesus said that we'll always have the poor, but in that statement, he also assumes that there's always going to be those who are better off, right? Who's the we in the statement? It's those who are a little better off than the poor. And, uh, and of course, we're all always going to have the rich as well. Jesus said that in Matthew 26, 11. And uh, so really, uh, Jesus just, uh, as, you, as you know him, he just addresses reality as it is and Things that we see now, the world that we observe, it's going to remain this way until Christ returns. There's no matter of um, social justice that is going to uh, cure what ails the world. Amen? It's just not going to happen. If you could remove uh, sinful, the sinful nature from man, uh, then perhaps you could do a great deal to remedy the problem. But... Uh, as we see even in uh, charitable works, social justice movements, there is this utter misuse of money. Uh, I will not give to a regular charity unless I know thoroughly about the institution. Uh, we've seen uh, violations of all of them. Uh, every social justice movement uh, seems to have its problems. BLM right now, millions and millions of dollars uh, not going into the vision, but to mansions and things like that. So it, until you get rid of the sinful nature of man, these problems are going to remain. 
Yeah. Just a reality that Jesus recognized. And instead of trying to solve the problem materialistically, which is the goal of social justice, he addresses it spiritually, confronts the heart of the person who finds themselves in uh, one or the other predicament, whether that be the concerns of the wealthy, uh, which people on the uh, lower part of the strata, uh, they don't think that's a predicament. It is. It's a huge predicament. Okay. So Jesus addresses that, and uh, he addresses those uh, on the other end. So regardless of the bracket that you're in, um, there's challenges, and if they're not dealt with by faith, uh, those challenges can be spiritually fatal. Just real quick, um, I think it's important to address I think too often the mistake is made in this whole context uh, by equating someone's material condition with their spiritual condition. We do this, uh, I believe, accidentally, uh, but it doesn't uh, remove the self-righteous nature of it. Have you guys caught yourself being self-righteous this morning? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have the mistake, we make the mistake of thinking that those who are materially wealthy are spiritually healthy. And you're th probably thinking, that I don't do that. The other mistake is that those who are materially poor are not always, or, or rather are spiritually deprived. We, we make this error all the time. But someone may be materially desperate, but be a spiritual giant and a wealthy person who looks really nice on the outside might just be a devil, okay? Westerns, Westerners typically look at people in third world countries and think, man, those people are really desperate for the gospel. Why do we do that? Because they're materially poor? That is the reason, by the way. We look at their, their, the state of their living and we think, gosh, they really need the gospel. That is a really strange perspective. It's a really strange Western perspective. It's a first world problem. Yeah. We think because of our abundance here that we're somehow uh, better and uh, rather than perhaps maybe better off, maybe. But people that are too, be too much better off, they got serious problems too, okay? And uh, so material, the material condition or state that someone is in uh, could mean very, very little. It may not be a symptom of spirituality. Uh, I think something we have to ask ourselves is the story, what, you know, what about the story of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man wound up in where? In hell, right? And Lazarus, who owned none, nothing, wound up in Abraham's bosom. Okay, so we have to be careful when we uh, look at the financial state that we find someone uh, we have to be careful not to make judgments about their spirituality. The poor man should be very careful envying the rich man. I think he should be very careful. Okay? And the rich man should be very careful judging the poor man. Both have their troubles, and Jesus is, I think, careful to confront both. Okay? He doesn't concern himself so much with economical status, but with their spiritual condition in whatever state they find themselves. 
and seeing that most people remain within the bracket that they're in, he just speaks to where people are. Okay, and that's important. So let's look at it a little closer. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, mind you, the average person in Jesus' audience, okay, heard verse 19 and they thought to themselves, no trouble there, I don't have any goods to store up. You get it? No trouble there. But they might have a trouble with covetousness, wanting to do that, okay? But then the wealthy who were in the audience, they thought to themselves, how dare you? I work hard for my goods. I give all my effort to that. So quickly, what is Jesus saying? Is he saying that we should never save our money for our next vehicle, uh, for emergencies, for vacations, (laughs) for retirement? If that is what Jesus is saying, he's in conflict with the rest of the word, okay? But Jesus, we never find him opposing the scriptures, never contradicting them. In fact, uh, for evangelicals, we know that that would actually be a self-contradiction because Jesus is the living word and the author of all that is written, amen? And he's not going to contradict himself. So Jesus isn't condemning what we would call wise stewardship of our material goods. He's condemning covetousness. He's condemning the senseless acquiring of material goods for the sake of satisfying greed. That's what he's condemning. Jesus knows that everyone is greedy. Every one of us is greedy. Every one of us is covetous. Um, But it's especially among the wealthy who have the ability to feed their greed with an abundance of material goods. But here's the problem. In the West, the average person has the ability to hoard and store up all kinds of goods. You've seen people's yards around here? One of the the craziest things about Western society is uh, storage units. It's big business. Big business. And the the funny thing is, is the majority, the vast majority of all people that store their their junk in a storage unit never use it. It, It's just the accumulation of things. And and then, have you ever been to a storage unit auction? Don't do it. Okay. It's just, it, it makes you feel icky, the kind of things that people just pack away and pack away and pack away. And oftentimes you find uh, boxes of garbage. It was like when we bought this place. We found rooms full of garbage and uh, just the putting away of stuff. But you guys, I think in Western culture, we're in great danger of this whole thing. Is that we live in a society that accommodates the storing of goods, the accumulation of things to myself and... Uh, Yeah, the affluent of Jesus' day is much like the average person today. I think, actually, they could only dream of the luxuries that we enjoy today. I mean, the convenience, the electronics, the vehicles. I mean, could you imagine riding in a a kidney-busting chariot? 
Do you have a Cadillac? Come on. We had nothing on us. And this whole thing, this availability and this acquiring of goods, it's very dangerous to the soul, and it, it blinds people from eternal realities. It blinds us. Okay? And our culture teaches us to feed our greed, doesn't it? You've got to have more. You've got to have more. So rather than storing up earthly treasures that are temporal, Jesus says they're corruptible, vulnerable to theft, he says, store your treasures in heaven where there is zero corruption, okay, where there are no thieves. Now, of course, we cannot store our material goods in heaven. Heaven is not a material uh, reality like too many believe, like the pharaohs believed. Have you guys been to a King Tut uh, exhibit? The vast amounts of wealth that he left with us. Okay, yeah. So I think the question is, what is, uh, what is the treasures that Jesus speaks of if they're not, if they're not material goods? Uh, simply put, it's, it really, it's trusting God and living faithfully for him in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. It's just faithful living, okay? There's an interesting commentary on spiritual riches in Hebrews 11 uh, in Moses' experience. It's not a real popular one, especially in Western culture. The author of Hebrews records this. He says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So for Moses, when he was coming of age, the vast treasury of Pharaoh didn't hold a candle to living for Christ, even under the hand of oppression and suffering. There was riches. Moses, we might say, treasured the treasury of Jesus more than he treasured the riches of Pharaoh. And it cost him dearly, but he was looking to a greater reward. He was looking to greater riches. Now, in the story of Moses, you know, coming of age for him was coming to age 40. I don't know what that's all about. I've been of age for five years. <laughs> but at 40, he ran away from Egypt. He abandoned all of its wealth, its comfort, and then he traveled east through the Sinai Desert to Midian. How many of you guys have been to the Sinai Desert? I think they get like a half an inch every 500 years or something. Right? <laughs> it's not a friendly desert. And then he became a Bedouin goat herder for 40 years. So he went from being the prince of Egypt to a goat herder for 40 years. And then the next 40 years he spent herding a wayward and complaining people through the same desert until he died in Moab. Moab. But Moses, though he suffered greatly for his faith, he regretted nothing when he left the things of the world behind to pursue the living God. He, he treasured the treasury of Christ. God put something in his heart, and so Moses chased 
what his heart was after, and that was God. So all of this, of course, that we're talking about is an issue of the heart. That's all of the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's an issue of the heart. Jesus says, for wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever your treasure is, that's where you're going to find your heart. So if God does not have your heart, if he's not, if he's not steering its affections, your passions, your appetites, and your love, you know, you're going to find your heart in some pretty ugly and dangerous places. And you will do some pretty ugly and dangerous things to get where your heart is. You will end up wherever your heart is. That's where you're going. You're going to end up there. You will pursue the desires of your heart. And if your heart is not anchored, if it's not tethered to the things of God, it will drift away and it will be shipwrecked. And in our context, it will be shipwrecked on the, cores, on the shores of covetousness. It will be, okay? The heart, as it is broken by sin, it is greedy, it is covetous. You know, as I, you know, as I look at all of the scriptures and I study the, the brokenness of man, the, the heart of man, I, you know, the, the best illustration I can come up with is that the, the heart is like a vacuum that just tries to suck up everything in its path like when a young child is the one steering the vacuum. What an unresponsible adult it is that gives a vacuum to a child. Okay. <laughs> Vacuums, of course, when they're not steered properly, they can destroy things in their path, and they can also destroy themselves by the things that they suck up. If that doesn't describe the human heart. The heart is a spiritual organ. And like a vacuum, it lacks all discernment. And so when you mingle sin with the heart of man, you, you kind of get a black hole. You kind of get a black hole. Jeremiah 9.17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And then he says, who can even know it? Who can know it? And so if God is not steering the affections of the heart, you can just imagine the kind of garbage that that nozzle will suck up. And we see it all around us in the world. It's just, just taking in whatever it can find. I think of social media and the damage that it's doing to the heart of our young people. Just taking in whatever the, the world will feed it, having no discernment, no guidance. Parents, you know what I'm saying, right? Provide some guidance. You know the best way to do that? Get it out of your house. Okay? Get it out of your house. But if God is at the helm, the heart then becomes really a beautiful instrument for uh, great good, but mostly for the glory of God, if he's steering it. Solomon, who understood after a lifetime of trial and error, he said, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart. David said, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxieties or my anxious thoughts. 
see if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. God, you search my heart, uh, and when he does, it's not a matter of if he will find offensive things. It's when he finds offensive things, we cry out to God to purge it, and then take the helm, okay, to steer that puppy, because it is, it's a strange spiritual organ, okay? It's a strange thing. Have God lead us in the way. God must be at the helm or we will be shipwrecked. Affections, appetites. Don't put that vacuum in your own hands because you're like a child. Okay, put it in the hand of God. Look now at how Jesus evaluates this whole thing. He says, the lamp of the body, well, by the way, some people disassociate this from the rest of the context, these statements. I think they need to be maintained. Okay, so the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your body, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Almost comes across as a question, doesn't it? Yeah. So in keeping with the context of greed... It, it is the eye, it's my eyes, your eyes, that expose the heart to all that can be coveted. What the eye looks at is what the heart will gravitate to. If the eyes are good, they'll set their, their gaze on what is good and what is godly, and it will fill the body, as it were, with goodness, with godliness. It'll be a blessing to you. A good eye will... Be looking intently for what is wholesome. Because the goal is for the heart to follow in step. And a good eye will look away from what is evil. And then it's going to do its best to draw the eye, or the heart rather, away from it. But if the eye is bad, it's going to hold its gaze on what is evil, what is ungodly. And in turn, the body, Jesus says, will be contaminated by it. Now, Jesus is later going to say that what is in the heart, the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks, and all of those issues come out, and he says every form of evil comes out of the heart. So we need a good eye, amen? Because what comes in and fills the abundance of the heart is what's going to come out, okay? And... and and dictate the course of our life. Careful with the eyes. Sucking up everything in its path. So the eye must regulate what the heart is exposed to. You know, David makes this interesting statement in Psalm 36.9. He says, in your light, we see light. In your light, we see light. Now in the scriptures, you know, light is always a reference to truth. It's a, tra- it's a reference to righteousness. And it is by observing, you know, studying, meditating on God's truth that we actually discern truth. It's how we identify it. It's how we recognize it. It's how we gravitate toward it. If we train, if we discipline our eyes according to the truth of God's word, Paul says that we'll be thoroughly equipped. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. And a good work 
in this context, is to guard your heart, to be intentional about protecting your heart. What is the dangers of the heart? So Jesus provides this warning. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, mammon is not money per se, okay? It's material possessions. It's wealth and riches. But it's interesting the way that Jesus uh, phrases it here. He actually personifies it to the status of a God that is to be served. He personifies mammon as a God. And it's a God that people serve. People can be consumed with the acquiring of things and possessions. So mammon, this is avarice. This is unquenchable greed. What a warning to those who confess Christ but have their heart set on the material things of this world. Jesus, listen carefully, he's teaching that covetousness is not compatible with Christian confession. Covetousness is not compatible with Christian confession. It divides the heart between two opposing loyalties, two loves that are, you know, mutually exclusive. And both of these loyalties demand the worshiper's full attention, their devotion. Both of them do. And the heart is not capable of dividing loyalties. It's not. It may pretend to love both, but it only loves one or the other. Its loyalties will fall to one. It will hold to one. And if only one can be loved, the other is going to be despised. You see, if the heart is divided, it cannot honor the great commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. That leaves no room for anything else. Nothing else. And God as we learn in the scriptures, he will have no rival. He will have no rival. But something else that we've found in human experience is neither will mammon. It will have no rival. So put mammon in its place. And Jesus says it will take you captive. Serve God alone, and then you can rule over your possessions. You can rule over your passions rather than being ruled. Amen? Timothy says, or Paul says rather to Timothy, he says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. That's what King Tut needed to know. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Speak for yourself, Paul. <laughs> but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Mammon will have no rival. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith because why? They'll either... Love one and hate the other. 
They've strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced them through, themselves through with many sorrows. So what are the benefits of mammon? Temptation, foolish and harmful lusts, destruction, perdition, and being pierced through with many sorrows. Yeah, that's the benefits of that. Doesn't sound like your best life now. <laughs> yeah, satisfaction in this life is found in the things beyond this life. As David confidently said, you will show me the path of life. And in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The, the heart can only be quenched. It can only be satisfied by Jesus. Let's go to the next section, Matthew 6, verse 25. He says, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. So typically the wealthy are tempted to trust in the treasury of their goods and then to add to that treasury, but those who live paycheck by paycheck are tempted to worry about their necessities. How many of you guys have been through that time where it's paycheck to paycheck? Oh man, I'll tell you what, those were really important years of our life, teaching us, man, Good stuff. But at those times, it was when there was money in the bank, we felt secure. But when the bank account was empty, and it's still the beginning of the month, we're anxious. We were anxious about every expense. But Jesus says, do not worry. Do not worry. And he doesn't just say this, you know, out of his authority. He speaks out of experience. You've read your Bible, right? He was born in poverty. He was raised in a poor community. And then he lived as a homeless man the last three and a half years of his life. Okay? Jesus knew real poverty. He once informed someone who hadn't yet counted the cost of following him. And he said, I want you to consider this. He says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Just something I want you to think about. Count the cost of following me. So Jesus was well acquainted with poverty, and he's the one who said, do not worry about your food or your clothing. And he gives some uh, convincing reasons why we should not. He begins here at the end of verse 25 by way of a question to remind his audience of the value of human life. And then what follows is he argues from the lesser to the greater. I'll explain myself. He says, Look at the birds of the air. He says, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Arguing from the lesser to the greater. Human life is of supreme value simply because we're created in the image of God. And if you by faith are a child of God, you have even more value to God. And therefore, we are of more value than anything in the animal kingdom like a bird, okay? And so if our Father in heaven would ensure that the birds are fed by his providential care, how much more would he provide for the needs of those created in his image, the, the needs of those that are his children? 
Now, real quick, before I move to the next argument, before anyone thinks that this is like, you know, government subsidy, <laughs> where you do nothing and receive money, we have to be reminded that birds are diligent to find the food that God has provided for them. They work extremely hard. And by the way, when you compliment somebody, or not compliment, but if you tell somebody they, they eat like a bird, it's not a compliment. Because many birds eat double their weight every day. And uh, just saying. We have to be reminded that God provided and he prescribed work for mankind. When did he do it? Before the fall or after? All the young people are like, well, certainly after. No, it's before the fall. That is to say, work is not a product of sin. It's not a divine consequence because of our rebellion. Okay? Work is a gift from God which, by which we experience a sense of dignity as we behave like God and as we contribute to our family, our community, and the result is the glory of God. Okay? Hard work and diligence are a blessing. If you fail to work hard and be diligent, you will not only struggle financially, you will dishonor God, your family, and your community. You see, laziness is a sin, okay? To not work when you're able to work is sinful. To not work when you are more than able to work is a disgusting sin. Paul said that if you don't work, you don't eat. If you do nothing... Nothing should be reciprocated. The minimum wage is zero, okay, with Paul. It is the worker, Jesus said, that is worthy of his food, Matthew 10, 10. The reference to if you don't work, you don't eat is 2 Thessalonians 3.10. So if someone is able to work and refuses to, or they're just lazy, they should be deprived of food. And I mean should in the moral sense. They should be deprived. Um, God has provided the work so that you might provide for yourself and your family. So the scriptures teach us to be diligent and to work. Okay? To be diligent and to work. I'm sure that will generate some fun conversations. Matthew 6, 27. So Jesus says, Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Some of you know this very well. Gabe, hasn't helped to worry. Yeah, waste of time. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith. So he's continuing the argument from the lesser to the greater, okay? Because God takes care of the things that are less valued than his children, like flowers. He will most certainly take care of his children. That's providence is witnessed in nature. Okay? It's witnessed. We watch it. So worry is a waste of time. It doesn't help. Because of who we are, worry is Illogical. It's a product of unbelief. And because God says, do not worry, 
to do something that God says not to do, what do we call that? Sin? To worry is sin? So Jesus says, therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? And I love this. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Jesus said that worry, anxiety, fear is is the preoccupation of the pagan. Why? Because they do not have a father in heaven. They're outside of the family of God. And so those should be the things that they worry about. Okay? The pagan doesn't know the love of God. He doesn't know his providence. So Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Seek first the kingdom, his kingdom, and his righteousness. If we do that, Jesus says, my father will concern himself with your needs. You concern yourself with his kingdom, and my dad will concern himself with your necessities. Yeah. To seek the kingdom of God is to really to honor God as your king, okay? To honor his rule, his authority, to be obedient to his word. And wherever somebody is committed to that, the product will be righteousness. Paul said this. He said, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've read the context of Romans 14, you know that some in the fellowship of the Roman uh, church there believed that there was a, a diet uh, that, you know, made you a better citizen to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, and, of course, the, the Jews wanted to enforce their kosher diet on the church, and then the, the, the Gentiles had their own troubles with diets because of paganism and, and so forth, and and so some people were promoting food as having some spiritual benefit. And Paul says, no, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. And eating and drinking is not to be equated with righteousness. Righteousness is something different, okay? True citizens of the kingdom practice righteousness. They live in peace and joy in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that those who give their utmost attention to the kingdom of God they're the ones that just get to rest. They get to trust God that he will provide for their needs. So Jesus concludes with this. He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, getting ready for this five-week trip and 7,000 miles, I haven't been very good at, at this particular text but that's none of your business, okay? <laughs> now, again, Jesus is not saying that we should not make preparations for tomorrow. That would be irresponsible, amen? Okay? He's saying that we shouldn't worry in unbelief about tomorrow. We should be diligent. We should be responsible to secure our necessities for tomorrow as we tend to our day-to-day -to -day responsibilities. 
but we shouldn't be filled with anxiety as we do it. Now, worry and anxiety, as Jesus has already said, these are pagan attributes. They are not Christian attributes. So the question is, that I think needs to, to be answered, and we'll close with this, is why is Jesus so opposed to worry and anxiety? Why is he getting so down on this when it seems to be just a part of the human makeup? Isn't it anxiety that fuels us to be responsible? Isn't it the fear of tomorrow that motivates us to take action? Well, probably. But it doesn't make it a good motivator. Okay? Anxiety, worry, and fear are a kind of unbelief. Remember Jesus said, oh, you of little faith. Those three things are a kind of unbelief, okay, that accuses God of being unbelievable. It accuses him of being unfaithful, unreliable. It, It takes the position that God will not keep his promise, that he does not keep his word. That's what those three things do, okay? So, I guess for some perspective, imagine if your five-year-old child was always worrying about their next meal. But not just worrying about getting their next meal, but they were always doubting that you would provide it. Well, I just don't know if, if dad is, if he's going to do it. I don't know that mom is going to make my next meal. And they just go about filled with anxiety. Yeah. Or they're constantly tormented by the fear that you wouldn't provide their necessary clothing. Not that boys would ever worry about that. They'll wear the same pair of pants until they wear off their body. (laughs) But in this kind of a scenario, there's either something wrong with you as the parent, or there's something seriously wrong with the child. Right? Right? Wouldn't you be deeply concerned for your child if they went about that way all the time? It wouldn't be very flattering, would it? But that's exactly what we do to God when we worry, when we're anxious about our next things. God is not flattered. He's certainly not glorified when we doubt his faithfulness, when we fret over his reliability. It's unbelief. It's it's rather insulting, don't you think? I think it is. God is worthy of our trust, and we should honor him with our faith. Let me close with Paul's brief commentary on this. Classic passage. Uh, If you've ever been through very difficult times, uh, this is uh, a passage here that you've never just read over. Okay? Uh, For some of you that have been through deeply troubling things, uh, this has become uh, just a fountain of, of joy to you. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. That means worry about nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Notice this here. 
It begins with a command and ends with a promise. It begins with the command to be anxious for nothing, the command to be praying, to be bringing your supplication to God, the command to be thankful, and then the promise that the peace of God that surpasses your ability to understand will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. So obey the command, enjoy the promise. Okay, disobey the command, miss the promise. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, here we are. We've made it this far. We've, we're living proof that you're faithful, that you've helped us all these years along the way. We, we've been fed. Some of us have been really fed. We've been clothed. We have all of our needs met, Lord, and way beyond all of that. But, Lord, it doesn't mean that our hearts aren't filled with trouble. I'm glad, Lord, that you know our frame, that we are dust, that we're broken by sin, and we falter in unbelief and worry and anxiety. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you more with our necessities, relying upon you as our Father. And Lord, I also pray that you would guard us from covetousness. 